The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. And today, we're so honored to have coming with us all the way from Vermont, Solvegi Smolsky. Solvegi, welcome. Thank you for having me, Hacky. Nice to be here. You know, I've read so much about you online with all you do in neurodiversity and your whole approach to, uh, to all that you do there at Landmark College and beyond. Why don't you give yourself a proper introduction? Okay, happy to do that. I've been a professor at Landmark College for over 20 years. Landmark exclusively serves students who learn differently. They might have um, a history of ADHD or dyslexia or autism or another variation that has affected their learning and they're coming to a program that has additional support and understanding for people like them. And we've been around for 20 years. We've grown, we've um, added uh, associate degrees and bachelor's degrees and we're still growing and still learning about serving neurodivergent students. And that's sort of what my job is. In addition to teaching psychology, I also direct the Center for Neurodiversity, which is an advocacy type organization within the school. It's uh, just in its nascent stages. And our goal is to create a platform for neurodivergent voices to talk about their experiences. And students are our big, um, you know, group there who are interested in hearing what they have to say and finding more places for them to talk. How did you get interested in neurodiversity? Good question. Um, when I was at UMass Amherst in the 90s, um, identity theory, social identity theory was really big. And, you know, there were it was like this explosion of theoretical work about people from marginalized communities somehow dealing with the shame and the stigma that they receive from society and turning it around into a positive identity through a lot of difficulty and pain, but by reaching out and finding others who are like them. And when I started working at Landmark, there wasn't much talk about that in the in terms of people who have ADHD and dyslexia. And I don't think the term neurodiversity was even used very much then. So it's like the mid to late nineties. And I used to wonder, here's a marginalized group of people. Where is their empowered group? Where is that? And when I started to hear the term neurodiversity and investigate it a little bit, I realized that in the autism community that was happening. And that's how I became interested. I think I saw Judy Singer's work, um, not when it came out, but shortly after. And I was very excited to see the parallel between neurodiversity and other forms of cultural diversity. What identity aspects do you feel have the greatest effect upon your students when we talk about their identity? You mean in terms of social identity? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think that a lot of students come in and they want their LD to go away. I think they come in and they want to be like everybody else. They want to be able to make these problems disappear so that they're accepted. Um, and it might be less that way for autistic students because they might have 
felt a little bit more outside the norm for longer than some students with ADHD and dyslexia who you might only know this if you're in school with them. And what I've seen from students is that they can, over their years in college, go from rejecting that neurodivergent part of themselves and wanting to erase it to accepting it, being proud of it, talking about it very, very openly, um, and demanding equal rights in society and advocating for themselves. But they recognize that there's a stigma and a natural thing to do when you have a stigmatized identity is to try to, you know, to get away from the pain. And sometimes they do just want it to go away. Um, but we hope that by being around each other, that they develop that strength as a community so that, so that that's not where they end up by the time they leave us. What does Landmark College do to promote this feeling that, you know, let's, let's get rid of the stigma. Let's move forward together. What mm -hmm. are some of the, and you have the Center for Neurodiversity there, and it's yeah. a very, uh, uh, a very uh, you know, rewarding place there. Um, tell us some of the aspects of it. Yeah. Well, this spring, I taught a course called Neurodiversity Narratives, and it was an identity course. And one of the, the unique things about this course is that all of the content was from neurodivergent people. I didn't have anything in there, no videos, no readings, if they weren't written by someone who was neurodivergent themselves. And the, so the students came in and they saw speakers and they had content by people like themselves talking about what it meant to be a person in the world with this identity. And my hope was that it created a sense of community beyond the walls of the college. And students then wrote their own um, comments on topics like ableism and inclusion and intersectionality, and those are going to get posted on the website. So I guess that was an attempt to try to connect students up to the wider neurodiversity world. So we try to do that. Um, the Center for Neurodiversity does that as well by having students go to panels. And um, we had a couple lined up for the spring, but they got canceled, unfortunately. Um, but what we try to do is figure out, is there a conference somewhere, a neurodiversity conference? And would they like to hear from college students about their experiences? And then we'll pull a panel together, uh, prepare them, and bring them in. And I tell you, those sort of events are always received really well. It seems like people want to hear directly from someone rather than someone like me talking about it. I, I came across a very interesting comment recently that uh, that with, with all that's going on in social media, these parents, if they're really concerned, why don't they ask an autistic adult who's already been there where their kid was? And I just found that very refreshing and very interesting mm -hmm. from, from that. Yeah. You know, it's kind of cool um, when students have gone out to speak to audiences. And there was a group of us who went, uh, I think it was four students last spring. They went to an organization in northern Vermont called Vermont Learning and Support Initiative. And this organization is a group of agency heads and social workers and educators up in the northern part of the state. They wanted to know how neurodiversity and mental health are connected. So they invited me up and I brought 
my entourage of students. And the students were wonderful. They were really very able to talk about this topic. And by describing their own experience, it made it very palpable and moving. And you could see, you know, some were almost uh, tearing up in the audience. And I wasn't surprised that they were impactful, the student speakers. But what I was surprised about is that the students didn't recognize until afterwards that what they had to say would be valued. Because I think with neurodiversity, you know, they've been through a world of doctors and diagnoses and someone else always knows more than them. Someone else always knows more about ADHD than them or about autism. And so they were kind of surprised that they were experts and that what they had to say was so valuable to this group. You, you know so much about ADHD and also about autism and Asperger's or so-called high-functioning autism. What are the biggest differences, if you will, uh, between the two? Um, I'll speak from my experiential knowledge, not from textbook knowledge. Um, the people who I've met on the spectrum, I think I'm going to feel are a little offbeat socially. They might not do the thing that I expect them to do socially. Um, they seem to, so I'm stereotyping here, but again, from my experience, they seem to take their role as students very, very seriously and are very earnest about it. Um, and the students I've had who have ADHD seem to have been able to develop some of them again, not everybody. They've been able to develop some social skills that might compensate for some of the weaknesses that their executive function challenges bring about. Um, so they can be a little bit um, more persuasive, a little bit less earnest sometimes. <laughs> um, They're party people. <laughs> they can be sometimes. I mean, you know, everybody's different and I can be wrong. I don't actually, we have files with diagnoses at our college, but I don't look at them. And they actually, we don't look at them. People who work with students don't look at them unless there's, you know, an advisor who's running into a very difficult challenge with a student and they need a little more insight about what, you know, doctors have found in the past. Um, so my my observations are stereotypes. <laughs> it's, yeah, if you've met one Aspie, you've met one Aspie and so forth. Um, I think it's that's so interesting. I remember a scene that I depicted in the movie The Square Root of Two, which was inspired by a true story, but it was uh, this one particular scene was inspired by a, a sit-down I had with one of the professors. These are all well-intentioned rules that are a little, they could be a little funky, you know? So the professor was allowed to know the accommodation that the individual needed. You need you know, 10% more time to do your test. You might need a quiet area. You might need a note taker. But they weren't allowed to be given the label. They weren't allowed to be given why. And I just found that so interesting. It's almost like, you know, tying your hands behind your back a little bit with uh, let's play guess at how I can best serve this student. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's difficult because, as you probably know, given your field, uh, Diagnosis is an art and a science, 
And there are biases and diagnosticians. Sometimes people get diagnoses because they're after certain accommodations or certain supports. So, you know, a person and their diagnosis, there isn't a hard and fast link there always necessarily. Um, I certainly think diagnostic labels do give you some information. They can tell you where to start looking. But, and this is again my bias from working with students, I really focus on what they're presenting. And I have in my mind some archetypes. And they might not be attached to a label, but I'm like, okay, executive function, you're gonna, you're having trouble activating and doing your work without someone reminding you. Maybe you have autism, maybe you have ADHD, and maybe you're just under a lot of stress. But I see the problem as activation, and then I have some ideas about how to help with that. Um, someone who's maybe being too brusque in a class setting and putting off their classmates. Um, so maybe I decide, okay, I'll give a little bit more direction on how to engage in group work in class and maybe lay out particular roles. Like someone's going to be the timekeeper and someone's going to write the ideas down and someone's going to report back. Everybody has a job. And that sort of strategy is based on someone not engaging, but it could be helpful for everybody, whether they have autism, maybe they do, or maybe they don't, maybe they just are having a cruddy day. Um, so I guess we're a little bit more focused on things that we see, phenomenon, and what to do about that. And a lot of times they are linked back to a diagnosis, but not always. It's interesting because it's such a double-edged sword all the way. And uh, one time I had um, the head of one of the big autism organizations really came down hard on me because I showed a PowerPoint slide with a video from a documentary where I said, I think labels are a lousy way to describe a human being. Oh, I took all kinds of heat. Well, how are you going to get any funding? How are you going to get grants? How are you going to do this and that? I said, I'm if we could circle back to the identity question, I have had a lot of students who, over the years who have gotten diagnosed kind of late in life, and they've reported to me that it can be really empowering to them because if they've been struggling up until they're 25, say, or 22 or whatever, and they don't have a label, then they think they're just a bad apple sometimes. And the label can sometimes explain it. Like, all right, I'm not just a bad character, but there are these, you know, my brain is different and these are some things I tend to do and there's other people like me and there's a name for it. And I have had a lot of students tell that to me that it's been a relief to hear that because then they don't hold as much of it themselves. Yes, and I find in another example of how the females get the short end of the stick, they get diagnosed much later. And one yeah. of the autism activists who used to be on our board who I interviewed Becker Laurie Hector, um, she didn't get diagnosed till her 30s. And up until that time, she's been told she was bipolar. She was this, she was that. She was on different medications. And she was so relieved in her 30s to learn this, you know? Yeah. And uh, I'm interested in the, whatever kind of brain you have is in giving you tools so you can get along, you know, kind of thing. And I, and I remember when I was interviewing uh, Becca Laurie, I asked her what her favorite job was because her history with jobs was she's high-functioning autistic. Her, her history was she would uh, 
Yeah, she'd last a few weeks and then she'd blow up, you know. And I, I said, well, what was the best job you ever had? She said, oh, the, the best job I ever had was as a bartender. And I said, I'm really surprised by that because, you know, the socialization, this and that. She goes, no, Hacky, you don't understand. There's this giant wooden island between you and the customer. So if guys start hitting on you or anything, you say, I got to serve a customer down the other end. It was, it was great. I was protected. So I said, well, what happened? She said, well, what do you think happened? I did such a good job. They promoted me to manager. I lasted two weeks and I was gone. So she needed to find her niche. Yes, yes, as we all do. We could talk a lot about tools that are helpful for people to have, but I think that self-knowledge and self-advocacy are huge, especially if you're neurodivergent, because it is going to be a narrower fit where you're really going to thrive. And so being able to understand what those settings are that are good for you and then being able to ask for what you need and explain to people your behavior sometimes is so valuable and so important. That is such a good point. That's, you know, you really hit the nail on the head with, with that. Tell us how Landmark College itself adapts to support the individual no matter what their diagnosis is. Okay. We have a long history of being very individual focused. So our mindset, I think, as a culture is in meeting a student and trying to understand what's up with them rather than pigeonholing them into something. Um, so I think it's part of our culture that we think on that level. From a practical standpoint, we're pretty small and we have a high hands-on model. Like there are a lot of professionals per student. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the ratio is, and it depends on if you count administrators or not, which I don't think you should count. Um, but however you slice it, there are a lot of us per student. So we have time. We have time to talk with students. And so we have an individual focus as part of our culture. We have a lot of time to talk to students. We try to stay up to date on learning theory, uh, cognitive psychology. So we're sort of following that those trends as they unfold. And we also are big proponents of universal design for learning. So we have the ethos of uh, when a student comes in to learn, it's our responsibility to create an environment that they're going to be successful in. Every student's different, so the environment should have a lot of possibility in it for someone coming in. So they should be able to get material in a lot of different ways. Maybe they get it from the textbook. Maybe they get it from an online video. Maybe they get it from a lecture. They should be able to show what they know in a bunch of different ways. Maybe it's you know, a paper or a test, or maybe it's a different kind of presentation project, or maybe it's something that they create that shows what they know. So we try to um, use universal design for learning principles in our teaching as a way to preset the environment so different people can be successful there. So we're not trying to race and retrofit something for someone who has a challenge. We're trying to set it up in the beginning so they'll be, they'll be fine. Well, what a sane way to do it, I must say. It's great. Wish the whole world did it like that. Yeah. Now, you've written some articles with Ken Gobo. And yeah. Well, Ken Gobo, he's a character, too. Tell us about some of your work with Ken. Ken and I have written together for over 20 years, and we have 
mostly focused on kind of the psychology of neurodiversity, I guess, broadly speaking. So we've looked at explanatory style in students who have ADHD. We've looked at identity in autistic students. Um, we've looked at executive function in autistic students. But I have to say, I have things to apologize for in my in my research career, and that is I came to it from the perspective of I'm the researcher and I'm going to look at this group and I'm going to study them and I'm going to say something of value about them and get it published. But what I never did was to really try to include the community in the research process from the beginning, including, you know, having focus groups to figure out what the questions should even be and what the instruments should be and what the implications were of what we were looking at. So I have been very influenced by the neurodiversity um, appeal to include people from the community in these decisions about research. And that's something I'm committed to doing in the future, but I don't have experience yet. I look forward to growing and changing. <laughs> what a novel idea to keep growing and changing. I mean, here's a good example. I read something, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to give you the exact um, citation for it, but it was a, an internet study about factors related to suicidal ideation in neurodivergent people. It came out a couple summers ago. And when I read the lit review, the authors talked about how they included neurodiverse people in their in a board to help them come up with the questionnaire items. And the neurodiverse people said, you have to have something in there about camouflaging. So it was basically a questionnaire. People take it online, check off various things. I do this. I do that. I agree with this. I agree with that. And then how suicidal have they been? And then the researchers then connected them up to see if they could find any trends, anything that predicted suicidal ideation. And the autistic uh, advisory group said camouflaging is a real problem. Camouflaging is when we mask our autistic symptoms so that we can get along in your neurotypical world so that people won't treat us badly. And it takes a lot out of us. We can learn how to do it, but it's tiring. And then we get burned out and can't deal and our mental health suffers. So the researchers created some camouflaging items for this survey. And lo and behold, what they found out after doing the research is that camouflaging was a very significant, statistically significant variable that predicted suicidal ideation. So they found a real connection between this phenomenon and what they were interested in, mental health. And if they didn't have this group, I don't know if they would have even known to put it on there. Wow. This is really important. Big. That's big. Yeah. And so much of, this is a double-edged sword, so much of what we try to do, I think, as educators is teach people how to camouflage in a way. Here's how you can act and present yourself so that others will accept you. And then I think, you know, that's that's a moral dilemma. <laughs> that is, it's very profound. Something that an intern told me once, and she said that there was, she's a very, um, a student on the spectrum, very out about it, and she used a lot of strategies that she'd learned over time to be able to deal with EF and to, you know, be able to engage socially in a way that others expected and received well. 
And she said the problem was that the better you get at it, the less people believe that you have the thing. And then the more people think you're a faker and then the more they want to pull the support away. So she said it's like this difficult space where um, you might try She would describe herself as trying really hard, getting great grades, then looking amazing, and then people question her very uh, profile. And she said it's hard not to internalize that. So then she would doubt it herself. And I think that self-doubt is pretty endemic in this group of students, in my experience, based on things I've heard them say. And so I think that places like your organization, where people are taught, neurodivergent people are talking and they're being featured, and things that raise the profile of the community is so important to try to counteract some of that self-doubt and say, this really is real. And other people really share these traits. And, you know, don't let the doubters and haters get you down. Um, So that's one thing that I wanted to say. And that's a very important thing, because it's not like you're an amputee or you're in a wheelchair. You're walking around, you're in many cases, smarter than the average bear in many ways. And uh, yeah, that's that's a big problem. It's, a, yeah. it's the ultimate catch-22. You know, that's, that's really what it is. Yeah. What's the biggest advice you would have for parents regarding um, how they can help their neurodivergent kid growing up? Yeah. I guess... I would, I'll think about it as a mom. I have two kids and sure, I want them to do well in school and, you know, to not have a lot of strain in their life that's beyond developmentally appropriate. But what I really want is for them to feel like they've got their people, to feel like they have a group who they can just let it all hang out with. They're accepted and this group can allow them to relieve stress and make them feel like they're part of humanity and make them feel like they're a valued person. And so I guess I would say to parents, help your child find that group if there is one. Um, Because that's what I would want for my own kids, I think. I mean, certainly getting support, you know, I don't know, everybody has a different experience in terms of their school district and what kind of supports are there. And I'm sure I know that some parents have to spend their entire, you know, child's education advocating very strongly for supports. And I, that is all extremely important. But I guess I think about um, wanting a person to feel well adjusted and good about who they are. And I think there's no better way to do that than to feel like you've got a few friends around you who accept you. Well, there's no doubt in all the studies that have been done any which way, uh, strong social relationships trumps a lot of other things that we herald as being important. And, you know, that's that's a role where you just mentioned that sports can do if you're lucky enough to find the right sport with the right group of people, you know, and uh, um, but that's tough. That can be very tough with all the peer group pressure and everything. Some of my folks uh you know, the students at Landmark really like hanging out with each other and they want to be together. But some of them also have come from places where there wasn't a neurodivergent group. And so they have online friendships 
And some of them are quite attached to these online friendships where they go and play a game together in a world that they've made and they have avatars who have been friends for years. I'm serious. Um, so even if you don't live in a place where you can find a group, there might be other ways to connect. What is the main concept behind the Center for Neurodiversity at Landmark College? Nothing about us without us. People who have ADHD, autism, dyslexia, and other variations should be the ones telling their stories and telling the rest of the world what their life is like. They're the experts. How can people learn more about you and your work at, as the director of the uh, Center for Neurodiversity at Landmark College and more about what you do? Uh, they could check out the college's website, and then the Center for Neurodiversity website is on there. I think my email is on there, and I always answer inquiries from folks, so I'd be happy to talk to anyone about what we do. Well, Solvegi, it's been a pleasure to have you here at Different Brains. Thank you so much for being with us here again. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful talking with you. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org.